We're just as human as everybody else, apparently. Hey, I want to welcome you if you're visiting with us today. Now you know a little bit more about how big of a dork I am. So, glad to have you with us today. We are in this series called Make Love Work. We're studying the book in the Bible called Song of Songs. And the idea here is a guy named Solomon, the wisest man besides Jesus who ever lived. Uh, he wrote thousands, th- actually over 3,000 Proverbs and 1,005 songs, according to the book of First Kings. I think it was chapter 4, verse 32, I think is what I said. And, uh, what's, or was it 32-4? Anyway, the whole point is he calls this in verse, chapter 1, verse 1, his best song ever. Now, as we get into the content, really start digging in today, this can be hard for some of you. Now, for some of you, this is like going to fly in the face of everything you've ever been taught about the subject. Now, we're only going to touch on some of these things. We'll get more into them over the next couple weeks. But if you grew up in a very legalistic home, mom and dad never talked about intimate matters. You never saw mom and dad fight. Uh, they never really talked about their relationship at all. You didn't know anything. There was some brokenness there, some pain there, some whatever it is. So that, you know, whatever it is, uh, you grew up in a home where it was very restrictive, There's parts, you get to this book, and it's right in the middle of the Bible, and you start to go, wow, that's in there? I can't believe that's in there. And here's the thing. So I know for some of you who come from the background, um, there are things that we're going to talk about, and they're going to make you uncomfortable. And I just want to challenge you to let them make you uncomfortable, because if it's in the Word of God, then there's a reason why it's in the Word of God. I made God a deal a long time ago when I decided to do uh, this thing called preaching that I would always say what the Word says. Now, I can get into trouble if I start adding to God's Word. That's bad. But if God's Word says it, we're not going to be embarrassed by it. We're not going to be ashamed of it. But we're going to handle it with care and appropriateness. Now, some of you, you're on the opposite extreme. You're not coming from this conservative kind of legalistic environment. You're actually coming from the free environment. I know a gentleman in this church, his dad came to him when he was a preteen, handed him a stack of adult magazines and said, here, son, I don't want you to become gay. Consequently, it ruined his life in a lot of ways. Promiscuity reigned for the next 15 or so years. He finally got married, and um, she really helped clean it up a little bit, work through it. He's doing far, far better today. But that was his environment. I know another girl, when she was in her teen years, her mom came to her and said, hey, honey, you better try before you buy. Because if you're not compatible in the bedroom, then your marriage won't work. And uh, she was my girlfriend. Except when she came to me, I said, well, that's not the way I was taught, and we're not going there. And we broke up shortly after that, and I moved, went to a new school, new town. And um, I'll never forget, when I ran into her a couple years later, we decided to get together, and it was totally just catching up. That was it. And she said, you know, what I missed most about our relationship was your purity. And I said... You know what I miss most about our relationship? Nothing. So, moving on. (laughs) Just kidding. The second part of that conversation never actually happened. The first part did. Anyway. Now, listen. If you come from a background where you are told, do whatever you want. If it feels good, do it. I just want to give you another side of that story today as we go through this book. But we're going to go everywhere the book goes and nowhere else. So, we're going to look for wisdom from God's word and we'll go from there. So, Let's jump right in now to Song of Songs, chapter 2. I want to pick up where we left off last week in verse 7. Let's take a look at verse 7. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you don't have an app, you would rather have something in your hands instead of just looking at the screen, I want to encourage you to pick this up. Turn to page 512, 513, page 512, 513. And if you want a Bible, you need a Bible, you could take this with you. We have generous people in our church who actually donate these to our church. And somebody said they found one with our name emblazoned on it somewhere, and they found it at Half Price Books for double what we paid for it. So apparently, it has value. So here we go. Songs of Songs, chapter 1, verse 7. Promise me, says this young lady, 
O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. There are three major voices in the poem, though there are a few others. There are three major voices. There's a young lady, the Shulamite girl. She's the girl who's going to be getting married, but right now she's just dating her lover. The lover is the young man, at least in the New Living Translation. That's what they call him. The young man is probably Solomon, King Solomon. And the Shulamite girl is, is maybe a real woman, maybe not, but it's at least a woman that he's writing about in the context of this love story. Now, when we get to here, what's happened up to this point, if you weren't here last week, is all through chapter one and chapter two through verse six, there is this love. They've met and they're falling in love and it's going great and he is doting over her and she's sharing her insecurities and she's praising him and what happens is through all this, they get closer, closer, closer and right before this, we find them in an intimate, physical place together and he's holding her head with his hand and he's got his arm wrapped around her and they're very, very close and then we get this verse and she tells all of her friends, these women of Jerusalem, whoa, Put on the brakes. Back up the truck a little bit. We need to put some boundaries in place. It's not time for that yet. No, I say that because this theme, actually this same thing, I'll see it again today, it comes up throughout the book. It's not time yet, it's not time yet, it's not time yet. And then we'll get to in a couple weeks when it is time, and it is a beautiful thing. But that leads us right into where we are next in chapter 2, verse 8. This is where we're picking up now. And it says, ah, I hear my lover coming. He is leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a swift gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he is behind the wall, looking through the window, peering into the room. What we're about to see now is that while this couple has met and they kind of began to foster this new relationship last week, now what we have is they are into the full-blown, what we today would call dating. And I realize a lot of you read Joshua Harris's book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. I didn't. I don't know what to tell you. You could date, you could court, you can whatever. I don't care if you meet somebody on the internet, through a friend, in school, however you choose to meet them. My main concern for you is not how you meet. It's not how you pursue the depth of the relationship. It's that you pursue the depth of the relationship in a pure Christ-honoring fashion. And what we see is this couple beginning to do that. And there's so much wisdom in this. So apparently she's inside her house and she hears Solomon coming on his horse and and he's coming up. He's on the, the, the stallion is showing up and she hears him and she looks out and he looks to her like a swift gazelle or a young stag. He's agile and, and tender and yet he is powerful and strong and she, her heart just starts pounding. She's so pumped. He gets up to the window and he looks in. He's like, hey, baby. You in there? <laughs> now look at what happens next. Verse 10. Now this is her talking and she's going to quote him. So it's not really his voice. Anybody who's married knows what this feels like. My lover said to me, rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. Look, the winter is past and the rains are over and gone. The flowers are springing up the season. A singing birds has come and the cooing of turtle doves fills the air. And you go, who in the world talks like this? People in love. I went back and was digging through some old things and found some old letters, poetry, things that I wrote my wife and thought to myself, that is the dumbest sounding thing I've ever read in my life. But when you're 22 and you are in love, you do not care. And that's the beauty of this book. It just shows it to us. And there's so much to learn in there. So part of what we get here, the winter's gone, the spring is coming. It's, it's referring to their love. We were both in a season where we had nobody. But now 
Spring is here. And love is coming up from the ground, just like trees and flowers and the buds and in their bloom. And this love is, is, is just a beautiful thing and it's growing. And if you are married, you know what this feels like, right? Because at some point you were there. At some point there was this excitement and passion and idea about just being together and spending time together. But that's not everything. Keep looking. Verse 13. The fig trees are forming young fruit, and the fragrant grapevines are blossoming. Rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. Remember, this is her telling you what he said. This is huge. So he's letting her know, come on, our relationship, it's time for it to grow. It's time for it to get better. And look, this is important. This will be relevant here in, in a couple verses. The fragrant grapevines are blossoming. So he's using this grapevine analogy. So back then, usually didn't have a vine, especially King Solomon. He had lots of land. There were lots of grapevines. In fact, we call that a vineyard. And he had them all over the place. And he's saying, look, 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 look out there. And just like these grapes are starting to grow. And when grapes grow, if you don't know this, it takes time for them to mature. You go to the store today and buy some grapes, you'll likely get a couple on there that didn't make it, but you'll see just the little grape. And he's saying, it's going to take time for this thing to grow, but look, if you look out, it's got little buds. You can see some leaves, and you can see just a little bit of piece of fruit on there. It's starting to grow, so come on, my baby. Honey, pie, mm, darling. I love this, by the way. The way he speaks to her is with such gentle, tender care. He's big, strong, powerful king. Men, you can be big, strong, powerful, and tender all at the same time. He says, rise up. Come away with me, my fair one. Now, if you weren't here last week, you don't know this, but I'll just fill you in. You can go back and read it or listen. It's fantastic stuff. She is insecure about how she looks. Her brothers have forced her. This keeps coming up. The brothers have forced her to work in their vineyards. And so she's been out in the sun baking She's worked hard. She's not like the inside wife. She's not had time, as she said, to spend on her own vineyard, her own body, her own looks. She's had to put all of her time and energy into being productive, into doing things. And he is taking her right to her place of insecurity and saying, my fair one, you are fantastic. I want to get to know you. Does somebody just clap for that? That's glorious. All right. Okay. Now look at what happens next. The young man speaks. Verse 14. And he says, my dove is hiding behind the rocks, behind an outcrop on the cliff. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is pleasant and your face is lovely. Now, again, she's insecure about her skin because it's dark. She doesn't know if she's beautiful. She matches up to other women. All women have these insecurities. But notice what he does. The very first thing he leads off is my dove. And then in the last section we talked about last week, he looks at her and he says, your eyes are like doves. Well, doves are typically white. And what we know here is if her skin is dark and her eyes are white, he's celebrating the color of her skin. He's going to her place of insecurity. He's getting rid of the insecurity by bathing it in praise. Men, take note. Your girlfriends, fiancés, wives, even your mothers have insecurities. And you can handle them with delicacy and beauty instead of pointing all of them out by praising them out. Now, what happens here? I love this. She's behind the wall, and he's saying to her, you're, you're like hidden behind the outcrop on a cliff. It's this beautiful way. You're inside your house. But look what he says. Let me see your face. 
Let me hear your voice, for your voice is pleasant and your face is lovely. So here we kind of get what's called chiasm. We get face, voice, voice, face. It's just kind of like an inverted pyramid. But what's it doing when it does that? It's focusing. It's focusing on this thing called intimacy. Not intimacy in the physical sense. Yes, that's very real. That comes in another chapter too. We're talking about intimacy in the I want to see into you kind of intimacy. I want to know you. There is no more personal place, more personal space, more personal act than to be face-to-face with another person. In fact, yesterday I was here for the conference, and um, they will tell you there is no more intimate touch than when a person touches another one's face. If some stranger walks up to you today and touches your face, you, as a guy, might just deck them. As a girl, you're going to get very uncomfortable very quickly because there's something intimate about that. I picture Solomon reaching his hand up, touching her face and saying, my dove, your face is lovely. I have longed to be with you, and now I want to hear your voice, not once, but twice. Why? I want to know you. I want to know all about you. I want to know your favorite color. I want to know what you enjoy doing. I want to know what drives you nuts. I want to know things. Tell me more. You know what this is like, right? You remember this. If you're at all married, you know. If you're dating, you understand. It's like, I just want to be with you. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care about my job. I don't care about anything. I just want to know more about you. Now, problem for some of you guys, I didn't say this in any other service. Problem for some of you guys is you're so concerned learning more about Peyton Manning or whatever your favorite sports team, event, car is, and you can't remember anything about the girl that you're with. Be like Solomon. Choose to bring down the walls, the barriers, a selfishness, and get into each other's lives. Now, there's a lot of wisdom here. There's a lot of wisdom here. Because if you're going to do all this talking, let's be honest, in the book, she does way more talking. If she's going to do all this talking, things are going to come up that you don't like. Let's take a look. Let's take a look at the very next verse. Verse 15. The women of Jerusalem now, her friends are speaking, and they say, catch all the little foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love, for the grapevines are blossoming. And you're like, what in the world are we talking about? We'll get to this part in a second. Remember I told you, vineyards, it's not just a vine, not a grapevine, like maybe next to your house. This is a vineyard. There are lots and lots of them, and it's King Solomon. They're everywhere. And so with these grapevines everywhere, and they're starting to blossom, but guess what? It takes time for love to grow. It takes months to go from the season to the beginning of this to the place where these grapes are ready to be plucked, and then you used for wine, which is the primary purpose here. It takes time. So what's the wisdom there for us? If you are in here, you are single, dating, engaged, want to be engaged one day, here's the wisdom. Do not rush to the altar. Don't rush to the altar. This is just my personal experience. There is data to back this up, but not all the data agrees with itself. So do what you want with this. It's been my experience that it takes roughly six to 12 months, six to 12 months for a person to feel safe enough to be real. And here's what I mean by that. Look, I get it today. Today, everybody's like, man, I'm just being real. You just accept me how I am. I'm just going to curse and be a jerk. Or I just won't wear makeup. I just won't try. And you just accept me how I am or you don't. That's not love. That's actually called being selfish. Not trying to put your best out there. But what is being real is not being afraid to share your fears, your anxieties, your insecurities. Not being afraid to let down your guard and see where you failed. Not being afraid to say I'm sorry. Not being afraid to tell somebody what you enjoy or what you don't enjoy. Not just eating what they like to eat or watching what they like to watch, but actually expressing how you feel about things because you are a human being and as such you have value. But it takes time 
to get there. Most people in the beginning of relationships play games, don't we? I want you to see the best me that I could possibly show you. And it's not until time goes on you start to go, hey, I'm going to show you a little bit of me and see how you do with it, that the, the walls, the guard stops, starts coming down a little bit. So it takes time. But as that happens and the guard comes down, these little foxes pop up, these annoying little things. And foxes in that day, they could do one of two things. They could actually go around and eat the little berries before they ever bloom. Well, that's a problem because then you have no vineyard. Or, and even worse, they can actually nibble on the roots and nibble on the base of the vine, killing that entire grapevine. Well, if you picture hills covered in vineyards, what's one or two foxes going to do? And picture an entire vineyard with one or two foxes running around for hours a day, every day, for months. And now every married couple in the room understands a little bit. I've read a lot of books on the book Songs of Solomon just to try to learn to help you. And not everybody agrees exactly on what the little foxes are because Solomon doesn't tell us. But there's some collective wisdom. So little foxes would be everything that's not big that could compromise your relationship. Okay, let's just say, for instance, you're dating. And he cheats on you, ladies. That's not little. That's not a little fox. That's a big bear. And he has, that's a forest fire. And if a man is willing to cheat on you when you're dating and when you're engaged, he doesn't have the character to stay married to you. And you need to walk away from that, or you at least need to put some serious distance between you till he does something about it and proves himself worthy. A little fox might be like, does he unroll the toilet paper over the top or under the bottom? And all the married people laughed. Because everybody knows it's... Any bottom people in here? Thank you. I don't care, actually. Everybody knows you squeeze a toothpaste from the middle. I was going to say different whatever you said anyway. To say top, the top is like the most annoying. These are small things. They add up over time when you get married. But let's talk about ones when you're dating. How about, does he ever actually sit down, put down his phone, put down his computer, put down his car, put down the TV remote, and talk to you? Because if he doesn't do it when you're dating, he certainly isn't going to do it when you're married. How does he treat his mom and dad? Does he treat them with honor and respect, or does he yell at them, talk back to them, and treat them rudely? Does she nag you incessantly when you're dating? Because it's not going away because you said, I do. I don't know. How does he do with crying babies? You might want to know that before you get married. Now listen, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, there are all kinds. I mean, I could, I could probably create a laundry list of things in my marriage. My wife, I, I can't believe they asked her this question. Her teaching stuff, for some reason, it's a little fox for me. It just drives me nuts. Not that I care that she has it. It's just everywhere. It's just sitting in a container, taking up space. And for some reason, that irritates me. And I have had to die to self over and over and over again. Like, who cares? It's in the garage and a bin. But for some reason, I care. Those little silly stupid things that are so not a big deal, but take 10 of them, multiply them by three years and five years and 10 years and 20 years, they become a big deal, don't they? One of my friends uh, was a mentor for a while. Uh, he'd been married about seven years and he and his wife almost didn't make it. And he said to me, Matt, I've realized it's about seven to 11 years into a marriage that uh, you kind of come to that realization that this is, this is it. This person's never going to change. This is who they are for the rest of your marriage. And I don't know that I agree with him on that, but he said, you have to make a decision. Is this 
the what I want to be with the rest of my life. By God's grace, he decided yes. They're still happily married. They have kids who are getting married and, and having grandkids now. And I thank God for his example. I thank God for his realness. If you don't learn these things when you're dating, you will find them out when you're married. It absolutely is going to happen. So the question is, can you discover them early and then can you work through them? Can you capture them and do something about them before you get there? Now here's just some wisdom. Do not do pastoral premarital counseling. I, I'm one, so I'm speaking on behalf of myself and others. Look, most of us probably could give you a lot of wisdom, but there are actually men and women in our church and our community who are trained in this kind of thing. And they're gonna be far better at meeting with you. Don't be a cheapskate. Don't go spend five and 10 and 15 and $20,000 on a wedding and then spend $200 on pastoral counseling. Go meet with a professional. Dig in. Try to find out what some of those tensions are, some of those issues are, and start to figure them out and say, you know what? Let's make sure we're set up to succeed. Let's make sure we're building a foundation. We actually have a fantastic marriage ministry here, and we've sent a number of couples who are about to get married through the marriage coaching, through our marriage mentoring. It's been fantastic for people. It's about 10 weeks long. Do something, but don't do nothing and think we're smart enough on our own to let these little foxes run through our vineyard. You're not. And there are far too many married couples in here right now that if they were bold enough and I were to ask them, they'd raise their hand and tell you this is ruining us today. And to those of you who are in this room who that's your story, it's not too late. It's not too late. I want to recommend a book to all of you. Um, what the Bible says about love, marriage, and sex is by Dr. David Jeremiah. It's a great read. I've read a lot of them. This is probably just the best overall. Great advice, biblical, practical, appropriate, all those things. But here's the thing. He tells a great story in this book. He tells a story about a, uh, a man who got married, who was infatuated with his wife, very much Songs of Solomon. They were in love. Everything was doing wonderful. And um, everything got worse over time. She stopped being as attractive as she was when she was younger. She started putting on weight. They started fighting about all these little kinds of things. And he got very angry and bitter at her. And so one day he decided he was done, and he went to a divorce lawyer and had a conversation. And he was planning to file for divorce. But before he actually did that, he sat down with a friend of his who just happened to be a psychiatrist. And he was just angry, and he said, I really want to get back at this woman. What do I do? What can I do to get back at her? And his friend, the psychiatrist, said, I know exactly what you should do. For the next 60 days, you treat her like a goddess. And he leaned in. Yeah? Oh, yeah. You get up early in the morning and you make her breakfast. You buy her flowers, especially when she's had a hard day. You write her love notes. You tell her everything you love about her. If she's cleaning the house, you get up off the couch and you go help. And then, and then on the 60th day, you serve her the divorce papers. And his friend leaned back and said, That's beautiful. What better way to get back at this woman who I can't stand right now than that? And so he got to work. Started making her breakfast, buying her flowers, writing her love notes, and saying encouraging things about her. And about 60 days later or so, his friend called him up, said, hey, how's it going? Did you do it? And he said, why in the world would I want to divorce a goddess? <laughs> now think about it for a minute. Man, perspective is everything. And these little foxes over time, they can grow and they can take over a marriage. And you could become obsessed with everything that is not yours or important. And the next thing you know, you're not in a marriage like this, the way God described it. You're living life side by side. And then sometimes you'd actually live side, you know, back to back. 
Sometimes you can actually be in a home where you're really not even sure if you're married or not. You're just in a home together. You're sharing a name, a piece of paper. But it doesn't have to be that way. And I promise you, if one of you is willing to die, and what I mean by that, not literally willing to die, if one of you is willing to die to self, I'd say, you know what, I'm going to love them and serve them and go out of my way to go back to doing what we used to do in the very beginning. If one of you is willing to do that, you can change this. Is it always going to work? No. But is it going to work more often than not? Yes. How do I know? That's what Jesus did. Most people will deny Jesus. Many people will be hearted to him for years, for decades. But Jesus just keeps pursuing. He just keeps coming after you. He just keeps knocking on the door and saying, I love you. I'm not giving up on you. There's still life in your body. There's still breath in you. I'm not quitting. Don't quit. And how many times in your life has Jesus tore down the wall? It doesn't have to be the end. Look at verse 16. My lover is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies. I love this verse. I love it because look at what, what, what she's saying here. Oh, he's mine and I'm his. This is very hard for, for, for all of us in America here today, but especially some of you from a younger generation. You're what we call postmodern. Of course, probably right now you're what we call post-postmodern, which just means you're really confused. You don't know what you are. But what this means is you have a very strong mentality, a strong bent towards this is my body, it's my life, it's my house, it's my car, it's my bank account, mine, mine, mine. And she says, I am his and he is mine. See, when God created marriage, he did it with the intention that two completely different people would become one. Amen. And this is the mystery of marriage. Because in a way, it points us back to God, who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But we don't refer to God as three. We refer to God as one. It's mystery. It's a mystery because in God, the Godhead, where there's no sin, there's no combativeness. There's no disagreeing and arguing. The Father speaks, the Son obeys. That's just how it goes because there's mutual submission. So the Father then gives glory to the Son and he raises the Son up and he blesses the Son and he trusts the Son and there's just this beauty of relationship. Now sin has ruined our marriages. It has. But in its perfect context, the way God created it, the lover is, belongs to each other. In fact, Paul says it this way in the New Testament. He says, wives, your bodies are not your own. Your body belongs to your husband. Oh, he didn't. <laughs> but don't worry, ladies, because the very next thing he says is, men, you're no different. So men, that means you can't be sneaking off into the bathroom by yourself. Your body is not your own. It is hers. And that means she can't be going on Facebook and creating a relationship with some former boyfriend because her body is yours. But it goes so far beyond body. Why do you have two separate bank accounts? I get it. You got to have your own cars. But my wife drives my car. I drive her car. It's in both our names. I don't have my credit cards and her credit cards. We have a credit card. We are one in every way. We're fighting for it. The little foxes get in there. Satan gets in there. My own pride and selfishness gets in there. We're fighting for it. Because here, this is huge. I'm going to steal my thunder from a couple weeks from now. So just act like you never heard it in a couple weeks. But when you got married, it wasn't a contract. Single people, you need to know this. When you get married, it's not a contract. A contract is this. You do this. I'll do this. Those are the terms of the agreement. You break the rules, I'm out. I break the rules, you're out. But in a marriage, it's a covenant. 
And in a covenant, see, when you're standing at the altar and the pastor, the priest, whatever, the guy like me is standing there, what happens is I'm there to represent God. That's why I don't recommend you go get married by a judge. I'm there to represent God. I'm not God. I'm just there to represent him. So when you look at them and say, for better or for worse, rich or poor, sickness and health, I do. And then they say the same thing to you. I'm standing there representing God and saying, now I'm a witness. You're not just making a contract. You're making a covenant. This goes every direction between us. So if he breaks his end of the deal, you still got to deal with God. You still made a covenant with him. You still said even, no matter what, if they get sick, they get poor, they're not loving, they're not kind, I still told God I do. And this is how you could say, my body is not my own, my life is not my own, it belongs to them. Why? Because it first belonged to God. Some of you are like, that's what's ruining my marriage. I know. So what are you going to do about it? Because when you open up your heart and you open up your life and you allow that other person in in every possible way, well, I know, guys, it's terribly vulnerable, terribly vulnerable and scary. But when you do that, there's a bond that occurs the way God intended for it to occur. And when it does, whoo, the flames, the sparks go flying. In fact, I'm gonna read this verse, I'm gonna tell you what it says, and we're gonna move on really quickly, really quickly, okay? So, because this is one of those ones that makes me blush. Verse 17. Before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, before this whole thing passes away, before it's too late, before the moment is gone, she says, return to me, my love, like a gazelle or a young stag on the rugged mountains. Again, she takes them all the back. Remember where we started verse eight? Remember he came riding over the hill. Oh, he's like a gazelle, like a stag. He's quick, he's agile, he's tender, he's gentle, he's powerful. Oh, would you come now and... <clears throat> on the rugged mountains. I'll just say, if you have the Bible out that we provide for you, you can open it up for yourself. There's a little asterisk right here, and down at the bottom, you'll see it says, on the mountains of Bether, Bether. We don't know what it is. There's no such thing as the mountains of Bether. They don't exist. Um, and that's why, because the word there, Bather, where they translated, different people translate different ways, because we don't know what to do with it. Bather literally means the divided mountains. It's very possible, Solomon is saying, that the two mountains located on her body, she's inviting him into. Chapter three, verse one. What? What? So, did I say that fast enough? We get to chapter three and it's highly likely, highly likely she's having a dream. We don't know. It could just be poetic, metaphoric, all this kind of beautiful stuff. But chapter three, verse one, we think she's having a dream sequence. And what I want you to do is see the dream for what it is. And then we'll talk through it. Chapter three, verse one. One night as I lay in bed, I yearned for my lover. Oh, I yearned for him, but he did not come. So I said to myself, I will get up and roam the city, searching in all its streets and squares. I will search for the one I love. So I searched everywhere, but I did not find him. Do you hear the desperation? What this is saying is she literally just can't stand it. She so desperately wants to be in his presence, but she can't find him. So she's laying in bed at night and he's not there. Why? Because they aren't married yet. That's huge. She's in bed by herself because they're not married yet. Friends of you who are living together, please take God at his word and trust God to provide. So she's alone, but she longs to be with him. And one of the pastors I listened to, a guy named Tommy Nelson from Denton Bible Church, did a fantastic job with this series. He wrote a book on it too. And he tells a story about a young lady in his church who said uh, one night her and her, I think it was boyfriend or fiance, I can't remember, they were, they were in the house, a uh, parent's house, and sleeping in separate rooms. And, uh, and she could hear him snoring through the wall. And she said she cried all night long because she wanted to be in the bed with him. And when I heard that, I thought, said no one ever. <laughs> 
But what it illustrates, what it illustrates is, man, when you're in the throes of the passion, it's like, man, I don't care if he snores. I don't care if she whatever. I just want to be with him. That's exactly what's happening here. She so desperately wants to be with him and her heart aches to be in his presence. She's actually dreaming about it at night. I want you to see this. This is biblical love. This is good. Man, I don't know where we took passion out of love and churches. It is so God-honoring. I remember when I um, was dating my uh, now wife. And I'll just tell you real quick, I, I was dating a girl before her. We were, we were, I was seriously dating her in that I thought, eh, she might be the one one day. And one night while praying and seeking the Lord, he led me to break up with her. And I was in tears because she was going to be the one. And I did. And God was faithful and he showed up and he gave me my wife. And I'm so glad I obeyed him. But after, shortly after, I didn't finish my story last week. Shortly after at McDonald's on April 5th, I asked her to go with me on a napkin. Uh, or actually, she said it was a piece of paper. I don't know. I think she's wrong. But anyway, I, um, shortly after that, she joined a traveling team. And she went all around the, like the, the Midwest region. And I went down and did an internship about a month later in a, at a church in southern Indiana. And uh, while down there, we were distant. And this was back in the days where cell phones weren't popular. I know some of you, it's hard to imagine. Everybody didn't have a cell phone. You couldn't make a call easily, and it cost a lot of money to do that. So I could only talk to her. She'd write me these long letters, and I'd write her a note. And uh, we would... Um, we would like soak in every moment where we got together. I remember this one time, like her schedule changed and I had some free time. And so, I mean, again, about two hours away after we were in Cincinnati in school together. I drove an hour and 45 minutes to the college, but I didn't tell her what I was doing. I remember stopping and buying stuff along the way. When I got up to the campus, she didn't know I was there. I was hiding notes all over the campus. And then I called her and I said, hey, honey. I said, how are you? you know, I'm tired, I'm stressed, blah, blah, blah. I said, I know, I know. I said, hey, I put notes all over the campus for you for just such a day as this. She goes, you did? When? I go, don't worry about that. I said, I want you to go find the first note you'll find here. And each note told a little story and a letter to another note. And I went, the last note led her to one of my friends lived off campus in an apartment complex. We'd go over there a lot of times, hang out, play games. And uh, I led her, like, we always parked in the same place. So I led her to this place where we park and I hid in the pine tree. And she got lost. <laughs> Apparently my notes weren't clear enough. And it took forever. I sat in there for an hour. I had to go to the bathroom. It was uncomfortable. There was like nowhere to go, and I'm afraid to step out because I'm afraid. I'm afraid she's going to pull up, and I'm not going to be there. She's like, "Okay, great. Now what?" Finally, finally, my heart's racing. I see her car pull up. She pulls right in front. A friend gets out with her because she didn't feel safe. I thought, "Oh, this is going to kill the moment." She gets out, and I walk over and embrace her, and we'll end the story there. It was just beautiful. I couldn't wait to be in her presence. I was worried hiding in that tree that she got hurt. I was worried something happened to her. I couldn't wait to be in her presence. And then a curfew on campus happened and we had to hurry up and go back. But, <laughs> verse three, the watchmen stopped me as they made their rounds. I asked, again, we're in a dream most likely. Have you seen the one that I love? She can't just, she wants to find him. Then scarcely had I left them when I found my love. I caught and held him tightly. Then I brought him to my mother's house, into my mother's bed where I had been conceived and everybody in the house went, ew. <laughs> Let me unpack this because there is so much wisdom in this one verse if you understand what's happening. So she desperately wants to be with him. She finally is reconnected with him. She can't wait to share this loving experience together with him. When she finds him, she immediately takes him up to mama's bed. Now, first of all, there could be some kind of what we might call weird um, Hebrew cultural thing going on that we don't know about. That's very possible. We don't know about it. The only quasi-reference we come up with is all the way back in the book of Genesis. There's a guy named Abraham. He's 
the father of many. We would call him our father today as believers. It's a long story I don't have time to go into. But Abraham had one son. His name was Isaac. And Abraham's wife was Sarah. So Abraham and Sarah are married, and they have one kid, Isaac. Now Sarah dies, and Isaac later marries a girl named Rebekah. So you still have Abraham there and Isaac and Rebekah. And when Isaac marries Rebekah, he takes Rebekah into his mother's tent for their honeymoon night. And again, you may go, that is so weird. There may be some cultural thing going on. It's a respect. It's an honor. Especially in that culture, it was a huge honor um, to have a child. If they were a daughter, to get them married. If they were a boy, for them to be able to take care of you. It was an honor. Children weren't frowned upon like they are today. This is a sign of respect. But there's something else going on here. She takes him to mama's bed. Why? So mama can approve of him. God gave you parents for a reason. He gave you parents to speak wisdom into your lives. And I realize for some of you that's never happened. You have cruel, evil, ungodly parents, whatever it is. Two things on that real quick. First, you must honor them anyway. You must. The Bible's crystal clear on this one. God says it's the first command that has a promise attached to it, to honor your father and your mother. That never goes away, never goes away. That's hard at times, I get it, but you still must do it. In fact, one of, one of the verses are on that same passage says that um, it's so that you may have a long life. And I've joked forever, it's because your parents know that if you don't honor them, they'll just take you out and make another one look just like you. So you're better off doing it anyway. <laughs> but here's the bigger thing, see, some of you, when Jesus shows up, he said this, he said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. Now, you may go like, what? Uh, Jesus is supposed to be a good teacher and everybody should like him and he's just fun and happy all the time. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And what he's saying is this. When you choose to follow me, when you see that I'm both your Savior and your Lord, going all in on Jesus means that it's a lifestyle change. And that lifestyle change is, could create separation for some of you. Jesus goes further and he says, you know, for some of you, it'll cost you your parents and your families and your siblings. It could cost you all those things to go all in with Jesus. And Jesus is just letting you know up front, know what you're signing up for. So some of you, when you come to faith in Jesus, your parents are not gonna be okay with it. And if you were to take a Christian boyfriend or girlfriend back to mama and say, mama, what do you think? How did I do? What foxes do you see? Is there any wisdom there? You may get nothing but bitterness and poison and vitriol coming towards you. And so my advice is, number one, you honor and love them anyway. And number two, you find a spiritual parent. When Jesus created the church, one of the most common references for it is the family, the family of God. Jesus knew that many of you, when you walked away from your families to come to faith in Jesus, Jesus knew that that was going to happen. So he created spiritual moms and spiritual dads. I had a young man this morning hug me and thank me because in a lot of ways I've been his spiritual dad just by teaching God's word. We need more older men and older women to step up and fill the gap because there's a huge one and it's only getting bigger. And listen, I know it's an inconvenience on you, your life, and your family, but this is what God has called us to. When Paul takes Titus, a young preacher, and he says to him, Titus, as you're leading, I want you to do this. I want you to teach the young men to respect the older men, and I want you to teach the older women to teach the younger women. Titus, go and do this. And that's what Titus did. He created churches that modeled that. So young men respect older men and older women teach younger women. 
See, there's something huge in this idea. Why? Why does he say it different in Titus? Why doesn't he say older men teach younger men, older women teach younger women? It's a little different. Here's one of the reasons why. If you go back to Genesis chapter two, verse, I think it's 24, if you go and look that up, you'll find that God says, for this reason, for marriage, a man shall leave his mother and his father. For that reason, a man shall leave his mother and his father and be joined, united, clinged, bonded to his wife. And this is a true principle I've seen over and over and over again. That's not always true. Some of you have broken families. But so often, when a man gets married, he starts a new home. That's what God intended. I still honor my parents. I still love my parents. I still talk to my parents and visit my parents. But I am now the leader in my home. But for women, it never says that. Which is why so many daughters stay so connected. So many wives stay so connected to mom and dad. There's a bond there. And so men, you're to honor and respect older men. Look at them, learn from them. But older women, you need to mentor younger women who don't have moms and dads around anymore. Fill the gap. Now, there's a ton of wisdom out of this. I literally talk to my parents on a good week once a week. They're amazing. I love my parents, but I'm busy. My wife talks to her mom almost every day, sometimes more than once a day. And often her dad is on the phone too. And it took me a few years of being a dumb young guy in marriage to figure out this is a good thing. It's a good thing. Men, it's a good thing. And you want to encourage that. But you also want to encourage them to find family here where others can speak wisdom into your life. So a few things. Number one, would you be humble enough to reach out and say you need help if you need help? If you're in a relationship and you need somebody to come alongside you and speak wisdom in your life and help you assess this dude or this girl that you're with and say, look, are they God-honoring? Are they, are they good for me? Would you be humble enough to say, I need help? And then some of you, look, I cannot mentor 2,300 people or whatever the number is on my own. I need some of you who are wise in the faith to step up and say, count on me, Pastor Matt. Call on me, Pastor Matt. I'm here when you need me. Now let's get to the last verse because she has brought him to mama's bedroom. Verse five. Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. That's the second time we've heard that, and it won't be the last. What Solomon does in the book, Song of Songs, is he keeps taking you up to that intimate moment. They're holding in a sweet embrace or something intimate happening, and, and you're like, oh, man, love is going crazy all over the place. It's good. And he says, whoa, back up. There needs to be a boundary here. And I say this, okay, a few things. Number one, some of you who are married, you've never actually redeemed your past. You never actually said to God, you know what, I wasn't faithful to you, God, before I married this woman, who's now my wife, so you're good to go, except that I would say, have that conversation with God and have that conversation with your spouse, and men take the lead. Actually, look at your bride later today or later this week and say, you know what, honey, I didn't stand up for purity when you needed me to. I believe I failed you, and I want you to know I'm sorry, and I love you. Men, trust me. Ladies, help me out now. That'll mean the world to her. Now, those of you who are dating or engaged, look, this, this isn't coming from me. This is biblical, biblical. Some of you have been playing with fire, and you can't figure out why you keep getting burned. This thing called love, whew, 
You turn that hot water on, it's hard to turn it off. It's hard, but it's doable. How do I know? Because you have God inside you. The Holy Spirit is in you if you've surrendered to him. You can do this. I recommend you move out of the house if you're living together. Move out of the house, not just separate bedrooms, out of the house. If that's too hard, figure it out. Sell the house, move, get separate apartments. You can do this. Even beyond that, that's just a physical thing. That's not gonna get rid of the emotions you're feeling, the stuff you're playing with. You're gonna have to put some clear boundary lines in place and you're gonna have to get an army to surround you. You're gonna have to find some men and some women to come into your life and say, you know what, I need you to help me. When we go out on a date, I need you to call me after the date. I would call you after the date. You at home, yes. Did you do anything? Maybe. Come on, talk to me. What'd you do? How far did you go? I wanna hear about it so I can pray with you. I wanna hold you accountable. You're not gonna do that again, right? You're not gonna go to that place again, right? You're not gonna do that again, right? Right. You may have to walk back through these steps of purity, but you can do it, and I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, your honeymoon night will be a thousand times better if you do. Now, I know this message lands all over the place. What I want to do right now is just pray for you because the good news is in Jesus, we find grace. We find the grace to overcome all of our failures and we find the grace to be stronger the next time. Now listen, I know you're putting your Bibles down and please hear this. When Paul is struggling with something, we don't even know what he's struggling with, but he's struggling with something. He's got a thorn in his flesh. He says, he prayed three times, God, take this away, take this away, take this away. And Jesus' response to him is, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul says, so I will boast all the more about my weaknesses because when I'm weakest, I am strongest. If this is an area of weakness for you, you can boast in the cross of Christ. His grace is sufficient for you. I should take that bread and that juice today. Would you just celebrate and talk to God about whatever it is you need to talk about? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this book of love. Thank you, God, for all of its beauty and majesty and glory. Thank you, God, for the example of these two lovers. God, we thank you for grace. Some of us have truly blown it. We threw uh, caution to the wind and we've had far too many experiences and visions and sights and fantasies with things we had no business being with. And God, I just thank you that your grace forgives us, but I also pray, God, for your grace to strengthen us, equip us, empower us, that we can be stronger next time. God, I pray for men and women in this room who have no father, too many dads walking out and not being present in the home, or their mother doesn't love you. They aren't speaking wisdom. God, I pray that spiritual men and spiritual women will speak up and speak into their lives and that they will humbly accept the wisdom they give. And God, I pray for men and women in this church to go outside of what's comfortable or normal for them and to actually go beyond themselves and to pour out what you've given to them and to others. And God, I pray right now, there are just people in this room that are broken. Their marriages are broken. Their families are broken. Their hearts are broken. Oh, God, right now, would you meet us in this place? Would you build us up? Would you strengthen the walls, Father, that the enemy has torn down? We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.